Welcome to The Waiting Room Revolution. We're so excited to announce our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Get a copy wherever you buy your books. And check out our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for more information. I can't live with the idea of just letting a bad thing happen and then that's mm -hmm. it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I feel like it helps me move forward if I take mm -hmm. the bad thing that happened mm -hmm. and turn it into good. It, kind mm -hmm. of in the same way that humor allows you to take back a, a piece of control over the mm -hmm. situation, I think advocacy mm -hmm. uh, does the same. That was Kristen Flannery, a.k.a. Lady Glockenflecken on social media and co-host of the podcast, Knock Knock High. She advocates for caregivers and co-survivors of medical trauma, such as critical illness and cardiac arrest and patient caregiver-centered care. We discuss the story behind the Glockenflecken name, the motivation behind her advocacy, and some of her exciting projects to make change. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Hi, Lady Glockenflecken. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to meet you guys. I've admired your work from afar. It's so amazing that you are agreeable to be on our podcast. Oh, I'm happy to be on it. I love what you guys are doing and, you know, a lot of your mission aligns a really, there's a lot of overlap with my mission too. So I'm really happy so to be here. Maybe the audience would know you as Lady Glockenflecken. Yes. But your real name is Kristen Flannery. Mm -hmm. um, and we'd love to, look, maybe we could start with, you know, who is Lady Glockenflecken and how did you develop this social media persona? Yeah. Uh, well, it started because so my husband, Will, is known very well on social media within the medical community as Dr. Glockenflecken and likes to fancy himself a comedian. And um, he was on Twitter all the time. This was several years ago. And he would be sitting in the corner looking at his phone and just giggling, you know, and <laughs> eventually I was like, what is so funny all the time over there. Um, and so he told me about med Twitter and, you know, then I started kind of hearing about some, some names here and there. Like I started to become familiar and eventually it just got to be like, well, you know, if we're going to hang out at all, I think I have to be on Twitter because <laughs> that's where you're spending all your time. So, um, I developed a persona of lady Glockenflecken um, and just stole all his friends basically, and then <laughs> would go on and, and roast him, you know, give him, I don't know, insult him or tease him or whatever, <laughs> uh, with whatever he was doing. And so, um, it just kind of started as a, that's, that's sort of our attachment style <laughs> to make fun of each other, or, mm -hmm. um, at least me make fun of him. Um, so, you know, we just were, it was a way to just hang out together. Um, you know, we have kids and jobs and a busy life. And so we don't get out much. So that was something that we could do together that didn't involve any of the other stuff. So, um, mm. yeah, that's how it started. And then, uh, just has kind of taken off from there with all of the, you know, events of the last few years, um, professionally, but also in our lives. So mm -hmm. yeah, now it's, it's growing and growing. <laughs> now I do it full time. <laughs> Amazing. Did you, did you ever think honestly? 
Did you think that it would ever grow into like this kind of personality? And where did Glockenflecken come from? (laughs) Yeah, we get that a lot. That is a real word in ophthalmology Mm -hmm. because my husband's an ophthalmologist. Um, He started his Dr. Glockenflecken character um, writing for Bomer blog, which I don't Mm -hmm. know, maybe you remember, but it was kind Mm -hmm. of like the onion, but for medical professionals. Mm -hmm. And they all used pseudonyms. No one used their their real names. And Mm -hmm. so- he had to come up with a pseudonym and he was at a research conference uh, one day during residency. And he is mm-hmm. not a researcher by any stretch of the imagination. He finds it so boring. And so he mm-hmm. was trying to entertain himself. And he got on Twitter as Dr. Glockenflecken and started making jokes because he said it was the, the funniest word in ophthalmology that he could <laughs> think of. He was trying to find the funniest <laughs> yeah. one. And so he, he just landed on that. But um, yeah, if we had known that it would get big like this, we probably mm-hmm. would have chosen something different, <laughs> but here we are. <laughs> it's memorable, at least. <laughs> exactly. Sure. There's no, no confusion. <laughs> well, we're so excited to have you on the show because you actually, on your Twitter, and a lot of the stuff you advocate for is about your experiences as a caregiver. Mm-hmm. And I think on, um, you know, you can see this on the website, but you talked about how your, suffer- your husband suffered um, different cancer occurrences, and then also had a cardiac arrest mm-hmm. at the age of 35. So um, that's really a lot for a young couple to handle. Yeah. I know you had kids at that time. So we'd love to, mm-hmm. you know, if you're open to sharing, um, talk a little bit about how that kind of changed your perspective and what it's like being, you know, having gone through that. Yeah. So um, when we were in our mid 20s, um, he was in medical school. I had just graduated from my graduate school program. Um, we decided, you know, th- there were a couple of years where I finished, but he wasn't finished yet. And we lived in the middle of nowhere and, you know, it just kind of was a weird time. So we thought, well, mm-hmm. let's just use this time where, you know, I'm kind of, my career's a little bit on hold right now anyway, waiting for him to graduate. So we'll just, you know, start our family. Cause we mm-hmm. knew we wanted to do that sometime. Um, seemed like as good a time as any, despite being in med school. Um, and so we went ahead and did, uh, had, we had our first daughter and when she was about a year old and he was still in med school, um, he was diagnosed with testicular cancer. Um, Mm -hmm. and luckily he found it really early. Um, Mm -hmm. and all it required was surgery. He didn't need radiation or chemo or anything. He just had an orchiectomy. Um, and they told us, you know, you can pretty much go on with life as, as normal. You can get by with just one testicle, you know, you may experience a few things, but just keep an eye out and let us know, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just kind of moved on, forgot about it eventually, but you know, it does I'll back up before we moved on. It does change your perspective mm-hmm. when in your mid twenties, when you're supposed to be your strongest, your healthiest, you know, mm-hmm. just prime of your life and you have this feeling of invincibility and possibility, the whole future is ahead of you and you have agency within it. You know, that's Mm -hmm. kind of the theme of the Mm twenties. Um, when instead you're a cancer patient, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a real shift in your identity and it's really Mm -hmm. hard to wrap your, your mind and your emotions around all of that. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, on my side of it, it was, even though we know it's a, you know, quote unquote, good cancer, which I hate Mm -hmm. that term. There's no good cancer, but it's a treatable Mm -hmm. cancer. Um, you still wonder, you know, like, well, if this happened, what else 
could happen and and mm-hmm. what if it's you know spread and we didn't catch it at first and you know what if i'm left to raise this child alone just all mm-hmm. these things that are mm-hmm. suddenly your future is a lot more uncertain than mm-hmm. you felt like it was um but yes we moved on from that went to residency i started my career in the town where he was in residency we had our second child um and then when that child was about a year old uh he got testicular cancer again oh. so it wasn't you know the question we get all the time from doctors is was it you know in response to treatment from the first one no mm-hmm. he had only had surgery um mm-hmm. he was just that lucky that of the already smaller percentage of people mm-hmm. that get testicular cancer about 1% of those go on to get testicular cancer in the second testicle and he was just one of those unlucky few so um that one was harder because mm-hmm. you know it comes with all the same mm-hmm. psychological baggage around having another cancer diagnosis mm-hmm. but also it meant um you know infertility this time mm-hmm. because it, it was a second orchiectomy mm-hmm. um it meant he had to go on hormone therapy for the rest of his life. And that is no walk in the park. I mean, here we are, gosh, that baby is now eight and a half years old and Mm -hmm. we still haven't got it exactly right. You know, we're still tweaking and that comes with a whole host of issues um, Mm -hmm. that don't get talked about nearly enough, but that's another podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, And it just was like, now it was affecting our life and our future and the choices that we were able to make. Um, in addition to still being very, we still had not made it out of our twenties yet, you know? And so two cancer diagnosis before you're 30 is a lot, um, to deal with. And then, um, three, four years. Yeah. Four years after that is when he had his cardiac arrest. So it was cancer, three years, cancer, four years, cardiac arrest. (laughs) So by the time he was 34 years old, he had had all of that happen to his body. So, you know, it's, I don't know. I feel like we aged quickly, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we went through a lot, um, all the while raising two small kids and getting our own careers off the grounds, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's a weird juxtaposition, you know, cause you go in these mm-hmm. waiting rooms and you see people that are two, three, four times your age. Mm-hmm. And you get the brochures with the information about your disease or your condition. And mm-hmm. they are full of 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds. And mm-hmm. there's just thing after thing, little micro things, you know, mm-hmm. that add up that tell you this shouldn't be happening to you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just, you're so unlucky because this shouldn't mm-hmm. be happening to you. Um, and it also makes it where you don't feel seen or understood because it's like all these materials that are made to help you as a patient or if you're lucky as a family member, mm-hmm. um, are not designed for you in your stage of life. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing in there about how to talk to your kids about mm-hmm. these diseases. There's mm-hmm. nothing in there about, you know, considering fertility or whatever. I mean, for testicular cancer, there is, but you know, there's all mm-hmm. these issues that come along that might vary by stage of life, you know, and, and mm-hmm. often with adolescents and young adults, their stage of life isn't considered in those materials. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really kind of just further, it's like adding insult to injury, you know, it's further isolating and, and uh, it's hard to feel like it's, you know, it's hard to normalize anything when that's the case. It, it's an unbelievable story. I mean, for sure. 
Um, yeah, if it were a movie script, it'd be like two on the nose and they would make <clears throat> you go back and rewrite it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, gosh, I want to ask you so many things. Um, did you feel like you were in the shadows of each of those major, you know, illnesses, you know, first testicular cancer, second one, and then the cardiac arrest. I mean, you know, the patient often gets the spotlight uh, and it is so scary, but you know, you're right there. You're right there. Yeah. That is one of my, you know, main messages since all of this um, is that this all happened to me too. You know, I mean, it didn't happen in my body. The disease itself Mm. was not in my body, but it happened to my mind and body as well, you know? Um, so with the, you know, the cancer, I remember just hardly even being looked at by mm-hmm. the doctors, like, you know, in conversation, like I'm in the room as well. And mm-hmm. they're telling us about the diagnosis and telling us about the treatment plan and telling us all these things. Mm-hmm. And, um, they're talking to him, they're looking at him, they're talking to him. Mm-hmm. They're asking him if he has any questions. Um, and nobody's being mean. Nobody's, no. you know, trying to exclude. Mm-hmm. It's just people don't think about it. You mm-hmm. know, they think of they think of the family member as like, well, that person is there for the patient. The patient is here for me. Right. Like I'm here yeah. to talk to the patient and then the patient can talk to the family member if they need additional support or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. But mm-hmm. which is true. But that person is many things. That person is a support person to the patient and also this disease is happening. If they're there with that patient, they're very close to the patient. So this Mm -hmm. disease is happening in their life as well. And it's affecting their life as well. And in the case of a marriage, I mean, or like a parent child intimately connected, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and affecting their life in much the same way as the patient. And yeah, very much was, um, I won't say ignored, but I will say overlooked, you know, no one, no one really thought about my role and why I might be there, what questions I might have, how I might Mm -hmm. be feeling about it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's almost like, wasn't it nice of you to drive the patient here today? Yeah, right. Yeah. So there's worst case scenario is kind of that, right? You Mm -hmm. either just are not acknowledged at all, or you're just considered to be only a support person for the patient. Mm -hmm. A little bit better is to say, oh, well, caregivers are a valued part of our care team. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm something at least and is true. <laughs> and also, <laughs> you know, that still leaves something out, which is this is a co-patient. Yeah. This yeah, is somebody who a, yeah. is mm-hmm. affected just as intensely if if you know, the details might look different, but they're affected yeah. very much as well. Yeah, I think we call it like a, they go on a parallel illness journey. I think yeah. you call it like a, they're like a co-survivor, right? I think you called yourself that. It, it is a co-patient yeah. exactly. It's like they're going along they're a unit in many ways. And right. And we're not friend. just there yes. as a support person. We're not just there mm-hmm. to bear witness to what they're going through. We do do mm-hmm. those things and those are important parts of it, mm-hmm. but we have our own path with that disease. Yeah. You're having your own illness experience. Yes. Um, we call that in our revolution, the ripple effect, um, mm-hmm. because when someone gets an illness, it automatically, you know, fans out to Mm -hmm. the people that are closest to them. Right. Right. And, um, the spotlight needs to broaden and include those people. Um, and so, yeah, so everything you're saying is completely aligned, uh, with 
our ripple effect is what we talk about it. So yeah, it's going to yeah, be that's great. That's an excellent way to put it because it does. And you know, yes, mm-hmm. all the, the attention goes to the patient, mm-hmm. and attention should go to the patient. I want to be mm-hmm. very clear about that. Yeah. I mean, they obviously are the kind of you know primary. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. the center of that ripple and they absolutely mm-hmm. should get all of the support and attention that they need. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's not the end of the story. No. And for some caregivers, it can feel almost like silencing, you know, mm-hmm. like you just in the different ways that you already described. So, and it can contribute to suffering for sure. Yeah. Um, okay. And I also wanted to know, it's interesting you say in the waiting room, because our revolution is called the waiting room revolution yes. and it's both you know, physically, when people are in the waiting room, it's such a power imbalance. You just mm-hmm. feel like totally vulnerable to, you know, just waiting in there uh, and waiting for what and for who and yeah. um, metaphor. And for how long? Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what, what what's my life going to be like after I get whatever I'm waiting for? Mm-hmm. Um, and metaphorically, people always feeling like, you know, they're waiting, waiting, waiting for the healthcare provider to invite them to know more or to answer questions or whatever. So that's why we called it waiting room revolution. Yeah. Um, When your husband was first diagnosed or the second diagnosis, um, I'm, I'm assuming there was a period of time where there were symptoms and you were waiting to find out what it was, or there might've been investigations to see if it had gone anywhere else in the body. Um, What was it like in that twilight zone before you actually had the information that allowed you to land with a plan? Mm -hmm. It's torture. I I think I've written about this before at some point. Like, I know people have limited control over their scheduling or whatnot, but like whatever control you do have or whatever you can do to improve that, oh, please do, because that is torturous. Because your mind goes in all the directions because you don't know which one will be yours. And so you consider all of them and you don't Mm -hmm. know, you know, from this will be just a blip to Mm -hmm. this will end his life to everything in Mm -hmm. between, you know, Mm -hmm. you don't know which one you're going to get. So um, it's, it's brutal to just have to sit and wait and not be able to do anything. You Mm -hmm. don't really want to Google too much because you don't want to scare yourself and you don't know which thing to Google anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you just have to just, I, oh, I wish I had better words to articulate it, but mm-hmm. it's just agonizing to just mm-hmm. sit in waiting yeah. and have no power or control to do anything about it, to, to yeah. get there any faster, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's so powerful what you're saying, because your husband is a doctor. And as you know, people who are connected to the system um, probably have more information, and yet you still had that experience. And so in many ways, our revolution was trying to activate patients and families so they could get some of that power back, I guess by asking questions, inviting themselves to the conversation, um, even if it's not being offered. You know, that information is there, but it's hidden. For example, people think palliative care is only for end of life. Um, and they think this revolution is about death and dying, but this isn't about dying well. We think the whole illness experience needs to be revamped. And so that's our mission in a nutshell. And I'm curious, does that resonate with you and your mission? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I think that the uh, so many thoughts, it's hard to, to pick the first one I want to talk about. So for one thing, 
to go back to the palliative care thing of everybody thinks it's dying. That is, I'm not even in palliative care. I'm not even in medicine. And that is one of my biggest pet peeves because Mm -hmm. I think that it's holding us back. I think it could be so wonderful if everyone Mm -hmm. took the principles of palliative care and that was just how care is provided. Mm -hmm. You know, the details may differ by specialty or condition or situation or what have you, Mm -hmm. but these underlying principles of, Mm -hmm. you know, informing people, figuring out what they're comfortable with, figuring out what their goals are for their care and their life, figuring, you know, instead of just here's some biology, we're going to do some stuff on it. And then Mm -hmm. the person's going to leave, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not, that's not care. That may Mm -hmm. be medicine, but that's not care. And I think most people go into medicine, not all sure, but most, I think go into medicine because they want to help people and provide care. And then that humanity and big picture is trained out of them. They're taught to just focus on disease and not people. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, because that's the system, it does what it's designed to do. Then Mm -hmm. the healthcare system becomes about disease and not people. Mm -hmm. So, oh, this is soapbox. I could go on forever about oh. that. <laughs> I think we should go get a bottle of wine <laughs> yes, <laughs> and crack it open. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Palliative care is, uh, of course we talk about it all the time, but you're right. It's really just good care. Yeah. Uh, that's all it is. It, it actually should never have to be labeled. It right. is a, ph- it's a philosophy of care that should pepper all, all the care. specialties. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, uh, get myself in trouble as a palliative care doctor, because I often say we've built ourselves a specialty, you know, at a time that maybe it was needed, but now we have to build ourselves out of a specialty because we really, um, you know, enabled the rest of the healthcare system to say, I don't do it. Uh, it's a specialty. So we're part of the problem, to be honest with you, (laughs) we're part of the solution and part of the problem at the Mm -hmm. same time. What we realized is, um, you know, we couldn't just hope for the luck that you could get a good doctor or that your doctor mm-hmm. had some experience with palliative care or some knowledge about that. We, we just, we, we had actually been educating, not just us, but met millions of people, uh, educating clinicians, healthcare providers for years without moving the needle. So our pivot with the waiting revolution was to take that education, those concepts, deconstruct palliative care into actionable steps for patients and families, and really try to, try to I guess, guide or show them how to leach out ways to get the best care possible. It really is about the yeah. best care possible or a person-centered care. Right. Mm-hmm. And they all know what it is because none of us get it. And then we, we have that, we all know that feeling of when you go to the doctor and it's so, you know, negative of an experience in various yeah. ways, it's demeaning or demoralizing mm-hmm. or just discouraging, or just mm-hmm. something about it is kind of like, Oh man, I really hoped for more from that appointment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Like we all know that this is the better approach, but it's mm-hmm. not what's being built into the system. Mm-hmm. We're trying to give patients and families the skills to get what they need out of the healthcare system yeah. um, without labeling it, but to be, as CN said, uh, respectfully activated or assertive <laughs> <I like that. laughs> or, you know, people don't like empowered, but, you know, to to, to come forward and you have the right, it is your life, right? You know, it's your future. Um, you know, don't worry about what the doctor says. Don't worry about being a good patient. Uh, 
you can be respectfully assertive and yeah, you know, and, and that's your right. So that's what we're trying to do um, is basically cause a um, tidal wave of a new type of patient and family to rush the healthcare system so that there's no choice. They're just going to have to change. They're going to have to get used to people coming and saying, I'd like to know more about the storyline of this illness and how it's going to unfold. What chapter am am I in? Um, How much time might I have? What are the big decision points I'm going to have to make or the milestones? And it's not going to be acceptable for doctors to say, I'm sorry, I have no crystal ball. Mm -hmm. We we have lots of information to share with patients and families. It's our discomfort that prevents us because we think we're going to make people sad or hopeless. Um, Right. This goes back again, like, uh, of course, you know, being married to a doctor and, I, and we've been together since college. So I saw the whole medical training journey. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they're, they're not taught how to deal with emotions. And in fact, they're mm-hmm. taught to suppress emotion mm-hmm. and put it in a little box and deal with it later, or maybe never. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just be this affectless robot, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's what you have to do to be able to see what you're going to see and do what you're going to do. I get the intention behind that, but I do not think it's effective. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of data to support that this may not be effective uh, because they're not robots, they're humans. And Mm -hmm. doing that takes the humanity away from the doctors and it takes the humanity, you know, that they might give to their patients. And then Mm -hmm. nobody's being treated like a human. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can't deny human nature just because you would like to, (laughs) you know? So So you need to learn to, to handle that. Yes. If you go into this field, you may see some, some sadness, some grief, some despair. You may see all these Mm -hmm. negative things, but that Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be a deal breaker. It doesn't have to be something that, you know, you have to turn off your humanity in order to see, let's all just be a little more emotionally intelligent and, Mm -hmm. you know, self-aware to be able to process those things and work through them and, Mm -hmm. and use them to provide better care because we're providing care human to human. Because that's often the antidote to physicians feeling helpless. Yes. They they want to help people. (laughs) Yeah. And help can come in the form of just being present, uh, being human, uh, using your emotional intelligence. It can be the best medicine, but if we wash it out of people because of professional boundaries, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, we end up rendering not only a disservice to the patient and families, but to the clinicians as well, because they just feel they have nothing to offer. But they right. do, There's they have themselves because the biology yeah. is as far as it is. And I think patients and families want that change. I don't, yeah. I don't, I mean, I think it's a new age, right? I do not mm-hmm. think it's professional to not, you know, to just stifle your emotions and tell me I don't have a crystal ball. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's acceptable, let alone professional. Mm-hmm. I think it's professional to understand where I might be coming from as I'm sitting in that room, listening Mm -hmm. to what you're saying Mm -hmm. and helping me work through that, you know, not in like a therapy way, if you're not a psychologist, but just like a, here's the information you need. Here's the information I have. Here are the resources that are available to you. I know this must be so hard for you Mm -hmm. and your family. Here's Mm -hmm. what you can do. You know, you don't have to be the one providing all of the help, but you're there in the moment when they're discovering these things and and when, the, you know, they're being treated and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so you are perfectly placed 
to share with them how they can continue to help themselves and Mm -hmm. where else they can find help. And none of that's happening. Or if it does happen, (laughs) it happens way too far into the illness journey. And so people avoid opening those cans of worms because you know what? You're going to just derail my clinic. And so people say, you know, it takes too long. Well, yes, it does take too long if you've waited too long actually to do that work. Right. Yeah. I will tell you, I mean, the one of the interactions I've had that has been the most meaningful uh, was, and I wrote a piece about this recently in um, the chest, in the journal chest, uh, was with an ICU nurse named Roger. All he did, he asked me, he was a, the, the nurse for my husband after his cardiac arrest, who's one of the mm-hmm. nurses, and he asked me how I was doing. And in my entire time as a co-patient and co-survivor, so, mm-hmm. you know, spanning a decade, mm-hmm. no one had ever asked me that question before from the healthcare system. Not one person. Mm-hmm. He was the first one 10 years in and the only one still to this day. Mm-hmm. So that's all it took. Mm-hmm. Hey, how are yeah. you? Yeah. He sees that this, you know, could be hard. He said, you're doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I still, I'm here. I am preaching about it everywhere now, you know, three mm. years later. I mean, that is all it takes. It does not have to, I mean, not always. Sure. There's situations that are more complicated, but that can mm. be all it takes. It's mm-hmm. not like this is, you know, demanding a lot of time or resources or money mm-hmm. or effort. It's mm-hmm. just, Hey, remember how to be a human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's being seen, right. And being recognized yeah. and acknowledged Yeah, this is hard and we're going to try our best, but you know, medicine can't do everything, but we're going to do all we can, but. Mm-hmm, there's, right. There's parts that are going to be hard. So yeah, and I, and you yeah. know I don't think patients expect med. Well, I don't know. Maybe some do, but I think for the mm-hmm. most part, you don't expect medicine to do everything. People understand there's limitations. You know, by the time you've tried everything and it hasn't worked, mm-hmm. you know, we're not. Yeah. Uh, that's not a surprise to us. Yeah. <laughs> so they've already thought of that in one of their million scenarios. Exactly. Yeah, they've exactly. already gone down that. So Kristen, we've been talking a lot about the waiting room revolution, but would love to hear more about the projects and work you are leading. Gosh, there's so much that I, you know, am dreaming of too that hasn't happened yet. But so far, what's kind of out in the world is um, a lot of writing. I'm working on writing. Um, I have published a few pieces um, in the Journal of Cardiac Failure and in Chest. Um, And then, you know, I'm starting slowly getting around to um, you know, publishing things on my own blog and just talking about, you know, the experience as a co-patient, mm-hmm. co-survivor, family member. Um, so that's there. We have a podcast now called Knock Knock High with the Glock and Fleckens. Um, it's mm-hmm. a medical comedy podcast. So it's it's a nice light listen, but we do get into, you know, some interesting and sometimes serious topics. Um, mm-hmm. but there's also a ton of, you know, jokes and stories and games and things that really our mission with the podcast and our mission with all of our work, um, with our company is to bring the humanity back to medicine, you know, mm-hmm. remind people that doctors are humans, remind doctors mm-hmm. that patients are humans and, and just mm-hmm. try to get everybody back on the same page of, of mm-hmm. dealing with each other, human to human and meeting your human needs, taking care of yourself, mm-hmm. taking care of others. So, um, so we have that out there. And then there's, of course, um, you know, my husband 
produces a bunch of videos that are um, kind of about that too, ultimately, right? Of He pokes fun at the different dynamics in healthcare and, you know, insurance companies and all sorts of things. Um, and, and that is all kind of towards that same goal. Um, mm. And then we have a lot of projects in the works in various stages, but, you know, my, my big dream someday, um, you know, I would love to many things, but I would, one of them is I would love to be able to have a, a framework for clinicians to be able to, you know, better understand the patient and family experience and how to make it good. You know, what makes it go wrong? What makes it go right? Um, just things, things to that effect using my, my personal experience, but also my professional experience and, and why you should care. You know, I think a lot of people might just kind of write it off as, oh, well, that's the, the mushy feeling stuff for, you know, psychologists or psychiatrists to deal with. And that's not mm -hmm. my job. Mm -hmm. um, but I would argue if it's, a, if you're a human, it is your job just on mm -hmm. a human level. And as a clinician, we know I come from, um, I studied cognitive neuroscience and social psychology and also psychophysiology in there. So I'm, I was very interested in how the, the brain and the body affect one another. Mm -hmm. And we know that these, I mean, the surgeon general just released an advisory about loneliness as a good example mm -hmm. that, you know, these mm -hmm. things that we have thought of in the past as mushy feeling stuff mm -hmm. actually have a biological effect on our bodies. It's detrimental mm -hmm. to our health. So in every way, I think it is, um, you know it is your job <laughs> as a clinician to be thinking about these things. Oh, that was, a, I went off on all mm -hmm. sorts of tangents, no. but. <laughs> um, I think probably Sienna and I are both thinking the same thing, like how unbelievably aligned your work is with the work mm -hmm. that we've been doing, um, which is similar uh, in terms of peeling back the curtains and helping patients and families understand what they need to know to have a fighting chance to feel like a human uh, right. through their illness experience. Right. Um, so, and this mind-body experience we see in, of course, palliative care all the time where symptoms are often amplified because of fears and anxiety. Yeah. And, you know, I get called for pain or nausea or insomnia and you dig underneath all of it. And it's usually because they have a major burning question or myth or mm -hmm, fake news or about anxiety. something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So no doubt. Um, no doubt. You and your husband have a certain style about you, um, <laughs> a certain vibe. Um, mm -hmm. So first of all, I can't believe two really funny people get along so well, because I think <laughs> normally you see like one person is really outgoing and the other one is serious and they make such a good couple because, but you're both hysterical. Um, <laughs> um, so how, so another part of our revolution is talking about your personal style and how yet yeah, there's the biology of the illness and the illness is going to mm -hmm. be its thing and there's science and all of that. But then there is the person and each person is going to have a different illness experience based on who they are, their coping mechanisms for better or worse, mm -hmm. um, how they've dealt with difficult problems before. Like there's a lot you can know about yourself to predict if and when you get a serious illness, how yeah. you're going to, um, you know, handle it, how you're going to move through it. So right. What other ways about you and your husband allowed you to move through 
these difficult times other than humor? Was that part that was that a way you got through it in those 10 years? Or did you guys become funny after? (laughs) (laughs) I think we've been funny. I don't know. Uh, No, humor definitely is a coping mechanism for us. Um, You know, we've ended up we started out already with, you know, pretty irreverent kind of humor. Um, and then as we've been through all these difficult experiences, you know, mm-hmm. we've, we've learned that, you know, dark humor can help you process. It's actually mm-hmm. therapeutic sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we just poke fun at it. And now, you know, even our kids have, you know, they've picked it up too, to, you know, my daughter just had a, I'll go into all the details, but uh, she was getting her braces off and it turned into an emergency room visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that by the time she's all okay, everything was fine. And mm-hmm. I mean, it was really scary and hard for her, mm-hmm. but then at the end of it, she was cracking a joke about it. Like, and I mm-hmm. said, you know, <laughs> it, interesting that you would crack a joke about it. And she said, it's a family tradition. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> chip, chip off the old block. Yeah. yeah. So it is a way to process it and to feel like you have some amount of control or at least the mm-hmm. illusion of control over mm-hmm. some, you know, the narrative of this thing that's happening mm-hmm. in your life. Um, I, I won't speak for my husband, I guess, without him here, but I know for me, I really, information is very helpful. I need mm-hmm language and information Mm -hmm. and data. And, you know, as long as it's accurate, I can't get enough of it. You know, Mm -hmm. um, that's what helps me kind of wrap my mind around it. And Mm -hmm. otherwise my mind will just spin with all Mm -hmm. of it. And so I need something to attach that to, to, Mm -hmm. you know, to let it be at peace. Um, and so that's what I always look for is like, why did this Mm -hmm. happen? Why did that happen? How Mm -hmm. on earth did this happen? You know, Mm -hmm. it was so unlikely was there something in our lives that made it more likely, you know, Mm -hmm. just go Mm -hmm. off on all the different um, Mm -hmm. possibilities and try to learn as much as I can about it. That helps, Mm -hmm. helps me. Um, And then, you know, also advocacy because I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I don't, I can't live with the idea of just letting a bad thing happen. And then that's Mm -hmm. it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I feel like it helps me move forward. If I take Mm -hmm. the bad thing that happened Mm -hmm. and turn it into good it, kind of mm-hmm. in the same way that humor allows you to take back a, a piece of control over the mm-hmm. situation I think advocacy mm-hmm. uh, does the same we're trying to encourage people um to go to to become comfortable with bringing that stuff forward when mm. they're they're initially diagnosed or early in the illness journey like doctor I have to tell you a couple things about me um, (laughs) so that we can figure out how to you know do this together one of them is that I need information I am a super seeker and I need concrete information I'm going to feel so floating in an abyss Mm -hmm. unless you anchor me with information like the kind of stuff that you said we're trying to get people to do like a, not a self-assessment, but really know themselves and know what they need and bring that forward to, to their appointments so that, you know, the doctor has their marching orders and it's not (laughs) unclear to them. Like, what does this person need? Yeah. I think sometimes doctors too, I think that would be helpful to the doctor because sometimes they think, you know, well, I can give this information to them. I don't know if they're the type of person that wants information or if they want to avoid the information. And so I'm just going to do nothing because I don't want to do the wrong thing. Exactly. And then I think that's a great idea. 
a cone of silence. The patients sit right. there passive waiting to be invited and the doctor's waiting for the person to declare themselves. Yeah. Neither one is doing it. And then we have, you know, a vortex. Right. So we want people to come forward and just say, this is my style doctor. This is what I need. And most doctors have told us when we've gone over this, they say, you know what, that would be so helpful. Yeah. I, I, that would be so helpful. <laughs> it actually gives, it makes me feel so uh, less worried about just right. speaking frankly and openly without like a ton of sugar, you know? Right. So anyway, there's so many yeah. things we can do that are so small, but so huge, huh? Right. Yes. I love that idea. Communication is so messy and hard, even on a good day and yeah. dealing with something like a, a huge diagnosis, you know, I think that would yeah, be beneficial for everybody. Kristen, you and your husband, Dr. Glockland Flecken, have such an amazing story and platform, and you have such a clear mission to improve the patient and family experience. It's similar to ours, and you've had so much success and things coming at you. I'm curious, how do you see your platform growing? I mean, do you have like a five-year plan or something, or are you letting things happen naturally? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I haven't really thought of it in that way before. Um, I think we're just sort of naturally attracted to the spark when we see it, right? When we recognize mm. what it is mm -hmm. we're doing in somebody else in some way, you know, they have their mm -hmm. take on it and we have ours, but we mm -hmm. recognize that overlap. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we follow that and we try to find good people. You know, we have a, an excellent production team on our podcast who really believes in our vision and in helping us make that happen. Um, and, you know, I think we say no to a lot of things because mm -hmm. sure they would be a financial opportunity, but they don't really align with what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we don't, we don't go those directions. We want to save our energy mm -hmm. for the directions that we would like to go. Um, so many people, individual people along the way that we've met mostly through Twitter um, mm -hmm. that, you know, I either just kind of keep an eye on their work and keep up with what they're doing because it it informs my work or, you know, that we have actually talked to or met and sometimes even uh, met in person. Um, Benjamin Abella comes to mind. He's been a huge ally for me. I think he knows everyone on the planet and he <laughs> is very happy to connect people to each other. Um, and so he's been very helpful. Um, he's been kind of a mentor to me as well as I've been learning the, the cardiac arrest space. Mm -hmm. Um, Rana Oddish has been so helpful to me because, um, you know, she didn't even know she was, but I was reading her book, you know, six months after the cardiac arrest and, um, she's a, an intensive care physician, but also an intensive care patient. And she mm -hmm. writes about that experience and, mm -hmm. and, um, kind of examines it from all sides, you know, mm -hmm. and a lot of what I experienced within the healthcare system that further traumatized me, mm -hmm. um, she writes mm -hmm. about, even though, you know, I was a family member, she was a patient, we didn't know mm -hmm. each other. We're on different sides of the country. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, but it was all the same and it felt mm -hmm. so validating to know like, okay, I'm not making this up. Mm -hmm. I'm not being overly sensitive. These issues do exist and mm -hmm. they are a problem. Mm -hmm. you know, to see them written out by somebody else, um, mm -hmm. that has been very helpful. And I mean, on and on and on many, many people, um, as individuals have, have been helpful to us along the way. And I think we're still, 
still in that phase of, of being introduced to, you know, people that, that have similar missions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we're almost out of time and we often end our interviews with this question of what advice do you have for patients and co-patients or co-survivors from all that you've experienced? Yeah. One thing that I tell people a lot when they send me questions, um, this is very similar to what you're saying is just don't be afraid to speak up for yourself. If you have a question, ask it. If you don't understand the response, say so. Um, you know, it's not, I feel like there's everybody's so cognizant of, you know, that the doctors just have so little time and you can feel mm. the rush when they walk into the room, you know? And, um, I think, it's okay. It is your life and your illness and these are high stakes. And so don't be afraid to use your voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love it. Love it. <laughs> Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. I could go on for hours. Yeah. You are <laughs> delightful. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shopa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza.